Noah Webster believed in spelling reform, and he was hugely influential in affecting spelling reform. People in history don't often get to assign spellings to words. People have tried this. Most of them fail when they try to make a spelling more simplified, when they try to make it distinct from something else. It doesn't often happen. This is an example that did. Coming up on Word Matters, burying the lead, and why British English and American English look so different. I'm Emily Brewster, and Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. On each episode, Merriam-Webster editors Neil Servan, Amon Shea, Peter Sokolowski, and I explore some aspect of the English language from the dictionary's vantage point. I'm not going to distract with expository information here. In other words, I'm not going to bury the lead. In fact, it's the lead that will be our topic of discussion. That's lead, L-E-D-E. And just how did it come to have that spelling? Here's Neil Servan with a term born in journalism and living in the mainstream. We've mentioned before that idioms can enter our language from really anywhere, any source, any kind of experience, any kind of familiar history, any kind of common experience that we know that can then be picked up in the language and establish itself as a familiar phrase. So we have a phrase that we use when, say, for example, Emily, if I was telling you that I went shopping for new clothes last week, I got this great outfit that I'm going to wear at my new job. You would accuse me of doing something there, right? Because I had never told you before that I was getting a new job. Mm -hmm. That would be a big deal. Since I was talking about getting new clothes, you would say I was burying the lead. Mm. Neil, why'd you bury the lead? Why did I bury the lead? What's your new job? It's a big deal. I should have told my colleagues here that I'm (laughs) getting a new job. I'm not getting a new job. So this idiom, bury the lead, comes from journalism, okay? The lead is the introductory section of a news story, It's intended to entice the reader to read the full story. It has the gist of what the article is about, not all the details, but enough that make you want to learn all the details later in the story. And so in journalism, to bury the lead is to take that important content and put it down in the story so that it's not the first thing the reader sees. The important aspect of the story is sort of hidden by these other more arcane details. And so it kind of makes sense that we use it in idiom, in general context. And journalists, of course, love to use it particularly because they're used to using it literally in their own work. So we have an NPR article from 2016. Danny Hajek says, we're not going to bury the lead here. Bob Ross's hair was actually straight. The AV Club has another example. The big box office story of the weekend isn't it exactly strange. So let's bury the lead for a second and start with some good news. Small movies are doing gangbusters business in limited release. That's a rare non-negative use of bury the lead. We often hear about bury the lead in the negative. You shouldn't bury the lead. Don't do that. It's because it's never really a good thing to do in journalism. The curious thing about lead is its spelling. It is spelled in many examples, not all of them, L-E-D-E. But it wasn't always this way. And the word itself derives from our verb lead, L-E-A-D. You would lead a story with the important information. And so it acquired this different alternative spelling, L-E-D-E. And the reason for this, it is believed, it was to create a distinction from the word lead. Well, the ambiguity in L-E-A-D... 
LEAD can be read a lot. LEAD can be read a lot of ways. It can yeah. be read as the verb to lead. It can be read as the the noun, the metal lead, and to lead something, the lead of an article. If you start throwing around these words with all the same spelling, then it gets confusing. So, when we talk about bearing the lead, we often see it spelled L-E-D-E, and it seems as though this spelling was deliberately created so as to be distinct from other uses of the verb lead and the noun lead. And of course, lead itself was used in journalism a lot because lead is used in the lines of linotype machines. It comes up so much, or it did come up so much, in newsrooms and the news production process that it was useful to have this alternate spelling. Do they often bury that kind of lead? <laughs> I think you could. <laughs> the beautiful thing about L-E-D-E is that it is completely unambiguous. As an English word, it pretty clearly reads as lead. Or leady. Or lead. But for a lot of times, journalists would try to keep this under wraps as like newsroom jargon. So the journalist Myron Waldman, in a book called Forgive Us Our Press Passes, said... Once Al Marlins, the assistant managing editor, told one of the cleaning men to walk up to me and ask to see my lead, spelled L-E-D-E, not L-E-A-D. He's deliberately saying that why he's choosing the word, he's choosing the spelling L-E-D-E, a newsy slang for the first sentence of the story. So this was a helpful thing. It made things more fluid in the office. It made things useful and removed ambiguity in this high-speed trying to get through the deadline. You don't want to be confused. You want communication. It's important. So you don't want there to be confusion. William Sapphire, who knew a thing of two about newsrooms, didn't care for this spelling. He said, wouldn't it be easier if the noun for the metal were spelled the way it sounded, L-E-D, mm. to rhyme with dead, and for the noun for the beginning of the newspaper story were spelled the way it was pronounced, L-E-D-E or L-E-E-D, to right. rhyme with deed. But others have been more willing to embrace the spelling. I think it depends on what kind of generation of journalist you are. But it struck me as just an interesting phenomenon that people in history don't often get to assign spellings to words. People have tried this. Most of them fail when they try to make a spelling more simplified, when they try to make it distinct from something else. It doesn't often happen. This is an example that did. But if you're going to do it, doing it within a sphere of jargon is a really great way to do it. It makes me think of Mike for microphone, yes. M-I-C, right. or even M-I-K-E, right? Mm-hmm. Both of those. They were first used by people in industries that used these materials. Right. When you're going to do it, do it when you're in a position where you have control over an entire branch of print <laughs> medium. There's a couple of interesting angles to this. You first get it to catch on with this small group of people with whom you are sort of intimate because you work in the same job. And you all have kind of the same goal in mind by trying to use this. And also just the fact that in our line of work, when we seek out evidence, a lot of that evidence comes from print media mm-hmm. or electronic media. So journalists are kind of at the forefront for presenting the evidence that we see as lexicographers. That's always been the case. The people with platforms mm-hmm. have been the people who have created the evidence that lexicographers have used to base their decisions on. Everyone now has a platform for written evidence. Everyone right. has a platform. I happen on Twitter to follow a lot of journalists. Mm-hmm. And so I also see journalistic jargon now, as mm. many people do. Mm. We now have access to kind of the unpublished thoughts of journalists. And so we have access to a lot more of their jargon. They have a bigger audience to use this jargon with. 
One of the other things that's interesting about the journalists that they kind of hid this view, so they kept this jargon separate initially, was that a lot of the 20th century usage guides were often blaming journalists for kind of destroying the language, right, you know, working right. against mm-hmm. the English language through laziness and then just generally uncouth behavior. So you almost wonder if they're a little gun-shy about bringing out their kind of linguistic creation. You know, like, <laughs> now that they finally are actually, because most of the time it wasn't really their fault. It was just they were seen as being this negative influence mm-hmm. on the development. Well, language. and the fact is, I mean, journalists have, fingers crossed, have editors and style guides and they use dictionaries and they pay close attention to things like hyphenation and capitalization. And the fact is that makes it a little bit sort of inherently conservative. In other words, if if there's a a hyphenated term that you might think would naturally close over time, which is the way these things typically evolve, often the journalists will say, well, in the dictionary, it's hyphenated, so that's the way I'm going to use it. And as dictionary editors, we look for new evidence and we find that they're actually the echo chamber, that they're using the styling that we present in the dictionary that was actually now 10 or 20 years ago was the standard. And so it can take a lot longer for those standards to evolve. Does that make sense to you? In other words, because there is careful editing Mm -hmm. for published prose, there's an inherent sort of conservative bias to the language, to the nature of the language, which I think is kind of fascinating. It also explains why some like decisions to change the styling of a word. In our dictionary, we kept the word website as an open compound for a long time. Mm -hmm. We turned it closed. The editors and the journalists, they had to like kind of make an active decision themselves. This word is familiar enough to me. (laughs) It's familiar enough to our audience. Let's stop treating this like this odd thing. We'll turn it into a single closed compound. It allows us to record those times when they kind of go rogue Mm -hmm. and decide (laughs) to make their own decision about something, recording of what is familiar to them. And that's what we record, and then that's when we put it in the dictionary. But we do enter L-E-D-E in the dictionary? Yes. Yeah. You just made me think lead and lead and read and read. Those are some of the things I trip over most frequently as a reader myself because I'll have to go back and say, oh, that's the past tense, read and not read. It's a peculiarity of the English language that we have these same spellings that are pronounced differently and also refer to different tenses. That's so odd. Kind of another little publishing angle, which is that word leading, L-E-A-D-I-N-G, the Uh noun leading, which is in typography, the distance between a pair of adjacent lines of composed text. So leading is sort of the distance between the space between vertical lines in a text. And it brings to mind a small data point about dictionaries, which is I think our collegiate dictionary has the smallest or the shortest letting of any commercially printed book in America because the letting of the 11th collegiate dictionary is actually negative, which is to say that the space between the lines is actually shorter than the height of a letter because we have to cram and shoehorn so much information into that book. And that's why our font has very careful risers and descenders for letters like P and Q and D and L. They're short so they don't crash. Yes, because we work really hard to not have to take things out of the dictionary. (laughs) (laughs) Before we get too far from bury the lead, I think there are some other journalistic terms that are similar. Spokes. S-P-O-X is an example also. We now have access to kind of the insider talk of journalists. Presser Mm. also. Mm -hmm. The POTUS, SCOTUS, all of those are not new, but they are newly popular and newly commonly known, I think because we now have access to the less guarded thoughts of journalists. The POTUS and SCOTUS, oddly enough, came up from telegraphs. SCOTUS, I think, in 1875, and POTUS, and I think 1895, they both came up in telegraphic operator code dictionaries, which were these wonderful anti-dictionaries because companies would use them to send information to each other in coded form. 
but they did so by ascribing meaning to an alphabetized list of words. So they took a list of words which are alphabetically organized. And so like absquatulate would be a word, but absquatulate means sell grain at $11 a bushel, but don't accept anything <laughs> less. And so you would just write absquatulate to your, your managing agent. And he would say, okay, oh, that's the price of grain this week. So it was all kinds of weird shorthand, but it was intended to not explain the words, but to make them more confusing in a way. And then they also added shorthand, and SCOTUS was first attested, and telegraphic code as was POTUS. So I think they had a certain amount of currency, but I'm sure that you're right, that they were then popularized through journalists. And of course, telegraphic code had the requirement of being brief because right. they were expensive to make. We have another forum now in which we kind of encourage terse messaging which is Twitter. Right. Now that it's 280 characters, things have changed. I feel like they've changed pretty dramatically. But it used to be to meet that 140-character designation, it could be really challenging. That medium really required brevity in ways that I think affected the language for a time. And so you see more use of POTUS. You see spokes instead of spokesperson. I mean, you're talking Mm -hmm. about seven valuable characters characters (laughs) that you're saving right there. So it sort of makes sense that we've kind of gone back to this telegraphy in this very strange roundabout way. And, you know, Twitter has done this thing by pulling the curtain back on certain professions that had been invisible, like journalists, copy editors, lexicographers. Mm -hmm. There's another one, which is lorem ipsum, right? The sort of filler text that we don't enter in the dictionary, but I've seen that used occasionally to refer to meaningless text, meaningless filler text. Or published by error. You've seen it in like context. Yeah. Like you've seen like there was a string of lorem ipsum or something. Right, like, right, yeah. right, okay. right. And sometimes they literally mean that sort of pat text. And sometimes they just mean that this is copied from a different document and means nothing in this context or something. Then maybe we should watch that term for entry in the dictionary. Yeah. And not bury the lead. You are listening to Word Matters. I'm Emily Brewster. We'll be back after the break with a conversation about Noah Webster's efforts to do something about the English language's notoriously unphonetic spelling. Word Matters is a production of Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Neil Servin. Do you have a question about the origin, history, or meaning of a word? Email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. I'm Peter Sokolowski. Join me every day for the Word of the Day, a brief look at the definition and history of one word, available at merriam-webster.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more podcasts from New England Public Media, visit the NEPM Podcast Hub at nepm.org. Spend a little time with something published on the other side of the pond, and you'll quickly see that there are significant differences between American English and British English spelling. Many of these differences can in fact be traced back to the work of our very own Noah Webster. Next up, I'll look at some of Webster's greatest spelling reform hits and misses. It's very clear to any of us who reads both British English and American English, that there are significant spelling differences in some of our most common words. So theater, center, they're both Mm. spelled 
R-E in British English and E-R in American English. We have the word color spelled O-U-R in British English and O-R in American English. This is because of the efforts of spelling reformers, not least among them Noah Webster. Mm -hmm. Spelling reform is kind of a big thing anyway in the 18th and 19th centuries. And Noah Webster believed in spelling reform, and he was hugely influential in affecting spelling reform in American English. Part of it was political. He wanted American English to be distinct from British English. And so he made some of these changes. Some changes that he made caught on and others did not. He, for example, is why we spell jail, the very sensibly (laughs) J-A-I-L, as opposed to the British G-A-O-L. I know, it's so strange. It is. Yeah. I know that we all have thought about spelling reform in various ways before, so I just thought this would be a good topic. I like to think about his failures. He did have this very charming essay that he wrote where he used Zs in places that we hear, the Z, Mm. that Z sound, Mm -hmm. that voice sibilant. And, you know, like in the word is and in the word was. And he didn't push that, which was wise. But also in the words like civilized and analyzed, he succeeded with that. That's right. That's right. So he is why we use a Z in those words. Mm -hmm. But we do not spell was or is I-Z or W-A-Z, which would really be was, actually. (laughs) So I like W-U-Z myself. A lot of the spelling reformers seem to have advocated for W-U-Z, but it really never took. Yeah, it didn't. And it does make such good sense. I do see it occasionally like in, I don't know, graffiti, like some facetious, what is meant to be a deliberate misspelling by some kid saying, you know, Chris was here, sure. W-U-Z, you know. I don't think they even realized that they're using a form that Noah Webster actually would have encouraged. It's it, true. Actually, it's... I wonder, as lol speak, just as we go further down this path of informal written English, I feel like the language right now is very playful. And it'll be interesting to see if some of these reforms that he was interested in affecting, if some of them wind up succeeding to a degree. What I really liked about Noah Webster, aside of the fact that he's the father of the company that we all work for, (laughs) was that although he was kind of a humorless man, he was very effective at what he did. A lot of the spelling reformers are really kind of bonkers. I mean, they have some pie-in-the-sky mentality that's common among them that makes it extremely unlikely that any of their schemes will come to pass. And it seems to me that Noah, at least, would kind of knew when to cut his losses. He had some <laughs> stupid ideas, and people would say, that's a dumb idea. And he didn't really say, you're right, and I, I'm sorry for it. But he would kind of take that in stride, and that's why he didn't push the machine spelled M-A-S-H-E-E-N. Like, <laughs> it was too forward-thinking. Or tongue, T-U-N-G. Sure, right. But, you know, you look at some of these guys. The, the, my favorite was Alexander Ellis, who was a 19th-century philologist. He published a book in 1848 called A Plea for Phonetic Spelling. And he wanted to change a lot of the things, but to me it was really representative of him as a spelling reformer was that he worked out that scissors could be spelled... 82 million (laughs) different ways. The the precise number he came up with, 81,997,920 possible ways of spelling scissors. I should say, he wasn't just a 19th century philologist, he was also a mathematician. I read his piece on this, and he does make a somewhat convincing case for it, but you have to say at some point, like, come on, man, get it together. Just work on a couple of words the way that Noah did, and and you have a much better chance of success. Well, and he didn't have access to the platform that Noah Webster had, right? Noah Webster not only wrote the most influential American dictionaries of America's birth years, 
but he also had his blue back speller. So he was right. able to influence generations copies. of school children right. on the correct way to spell various words. The fact is, though, the premise of all of this is that English spelling is illogical. That's the problem, right? I mean, that's the real problem that everyone is trying to solve. It's beastly. It's really devastatingly difficult. And I think Webster had two goals. He wanted to make American English a kind of politically independent variety of the language, and he wanted to make a more phonetically logical variety of English, and he clearly succeeded with the first and failed with the second. There's so many reformers out there, and, and what's interesting is, yeah, of course English is a beast of a language to spell. Of course it's a, it's a real pain. It doesn't make sense. And of course you can spell scissors 82 million ways. <laughs> but what's fascinating to me is that there is no obvious alternative. And the spelling reformers, when you look at their individual efforts, because many of them would write entire books in their own simplified spelling mm-hmm. system. And you sit there and you can figure it out. And then, okay, I, I can get that, but they don't match the other ones. So there's no one correct way. And it always draws to mind one of my other favorite spelling reformers, which was Melville Dewey, the father of the Dewey Decimal System, mm-hmm. we all know and love so much. His name originally was spelled Melville the way that Herman Melville was M-E-L-V-I-L-L-E. And he changed that because he was true to his word. He had the courage of his convictions. And so he changed his (laughs) first name to M-E-L-V-I-L because it's simplified. He tried to change his last name to Dewey, D-U-I, and it didn't take. Which would be hard to read It didn't quite work out. In his book on simplified spelling, he had this great sentence, which is written in a simplified manner. I won't reproduce, but it says, many will be annoyed and some will ridicule. It's like the epigraph for the entire spelling reform movement. Sure, and and this is what he had in common with Webster. He hated double letters and he hated silent letters, right? So Webster dropped the U from humor and color and honor. They served no phonetic purpose. He dropped the K from words like music and public because, again, we already had the terminal C. You didn't need to duplicate that. And that's why we in American English have the convention of conjugating verbs, for example, without doubling the consonants. A word like traveled, for example, would have uh, two L's in British English or the New Yorker magazine, (laughs) but just one in most conventional American English. And so Webster had that influence on the language that I think is quite far-reaching because there's a lot of verb inflections, there's a lot of adjectives that are spelled with only one consonant as a consequence of his hatred for silent letters and double letters. It speaks to this idea of like a democratic notion behind language. Exactly. what, What becomes popular is what becomes accepted. And then you've got this one guy who thinks he's starting a revolution by trying to change things. And if you know a Webster, obviously you've got the dictionary to kind of help you promote this. If you're somebody else who's not producing a dictionary, then you're kind of this troublemaker. This person who's like just trying to change all the rules that other people have already been learning and then trying to establish this new way that you're trying to get people on board with. That is an extraordinarily hard thing to do. It's a bit of a bombastic and pompous thing to do. It's a just to kind of like think that your way is somehow going to be better and right. then going to be accepted when the idea of language is trying to communicate and get people on the same page, almost does the opposite of that. Sure. It sort it's of a creates... fool's errand it's, for it sure, yeah. but it is a noble attempt to want to simplify things. Sure. As someone who used to teach children to read, <laughs> and, and specifically children with severe dyslexia, I completely understand the impulse to desperately mm. want to make a word like should spellable. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any personal favorites of Noah's suggestions, words that he suggested changing the spelling of which didn't make it that you'd like to bring back? 
I like is and is, was yeah. with their Z's. And I like yeah. soup. I mean, I just think soup, S-O-O-P, is just funny. Yeah. That is, so I like that one. Yeah. And women, W-I-M-M-I-N. That was a nice one. And ache, actually, A-K-E. And acre. Is a really nice one. It's a fool's errand. It really is. Unless you happen to be a dictionary publisher. Oh, hey. Let us know what you think about Word Matters. Review us on Apple Podcasts or email us at wordmatters at merriam-webster.com. You can also visit us at nepm.org. And for the word of the day and all your general dictionary needs, visit merriam-webster.com. Our theme music is by Tobias Voigt. Artwork by Annie Jacobson. Word Matters is produced by Adam Maid and John Vosey. For Neil Servan, Amon Shea, and Peter Sokolowski, I'm Emily Brewster. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media.